go ahead and open God's Word. If you've got a Bible with you, let me invite you to open it up to the book of Romans, chapter 16, to the last chapter of the New Testament book of Romans. This is a, this is a great day, I think, to remind ourselves of the why behind everything we do as a church, the motivation behind who we are and what we're involved in, why we value what we're doing right now, why we value gathered worship, why we value and prioritize small groups, and why we value and prioritize investing in the next generation with the gospel to transfer the gospel generation after generation, why we devote so much energy and passion and resources to the advancement of the gospel among the nations, so here's something we've been talking about for about four years, and it's at the top of your outline, and we'll see if we can fill this out together. Maybe we can even say it together when we get to it. The church is called to the threefold task of worship, nurture, and mission. Threefold task of worship, nurture, and mission. We've seen that over these last four years. We've looked at that in text after text after text of God's Word. Romans 16, I would submit to you, is a picture of the fruit of gospel partnership in those areas. So you see the fruit of gospel work in the church as Phoebe comes right there at the beginning of chapter 16 and she's been a blessing at the church at Sencre and Paul is saying she's gonna be a blessing at the church at Rome. So it's the insides of the church being strengthened by deacons and servants and leaders. And then you keep reading and, you, and he says greet uh, Greet Aquila and Prisca and greet them and the church that meets in their house. So you have gathered worship that features in this passage and the fruit of those who have a passion for gathered worship. And then you see Prisca and Aquila risking their necks for the advancement of the gospel among the Gentiles, among the nations. So you see worship and nurture and mission and the fruit of partnership and commonly held passion. There is, I would, I would say to you, there's a story in these names in Romans chapter 16, and the story is this. Romans 16 is a people unified in the cause of gospel ministry and the cause of gospel mission. I hope we're gonna see that. Follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse one. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, that's the word deacon, was a servant of the church in Sincre. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Give my greetings to Prisca and Aquila, also known as Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus who risked their own necks for my life. Not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches. Greet also the church that meets in their home. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who is the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked very hard for you. She's worked hard for the church at Rome. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. They are noteworthy in the eyes of the apostles, and they were also in Christ before me. 
Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachus. Greet Apellus, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those who belong to the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, who have worked hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympias, and all the saints who are with him. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send you greetings. So I believe God's design in inspiring this text, it's not, just a, it's not just Paul walking, you know, kind of working the rope line and glad-handing at the end of his letter. This is meaningful gospel connection. These are deep friendships and partnerships that have borne fruit for the ministry of the gospel in the church and the ministry of the gospel around the world. So I believe God's design in inspiring this text for you and me sitting right here this morning is to make it abundantly clear, this is in your notes, that gospel ministry and gospel mission, so those are inseparable, depends on a properly functioning church. Gospel ministry and gospel mission depends on a properly functioning church. Each member, as Paul says in other places in Ephesians chapter 4, each member playing their part so that the whole thing can grow up, building itself up in love and reaching out to a lost world. That's what you see playing out here in these names. There's a story in the names, 27 individuals mentioned here at the end of this letter. You study the names and you can see their names with Jewish backgrounds, names with Gentile backgrounds, men, women names, singles, married couples names, rich names, poor names, right? People who are associated with great households and people who probably worked in those households, but who were believers. And all these people partnering together in gospel ministry and gospel mission. 27 believers are mentioned and referenced, three churches. And all these people are rowing in the same direction to see Jesus magnified in the world and to see believers strengthened through the gospel. I heard a story that powerfully, I think, illustrates unchanging multi-generational faithfulness. Years ago, it was an NPR report about a famous composer, uh, arguably some believe him to be the greatest American living composer. His name is Steve Reich. And he's an extremely creative composer, always pushing, pushing the envelope musically and creatively. And uh, back in 1970, Steve Reich traveled. He had heard the story about a people group in Ghana, and he traveled to go and, and meet them and find out more about their story and explore the music that they created. He had heard about them. This is a people group that had migrated and ended up in Ghana back in the 1500s. So they had been in Ghana for many centuries, but they had been in existence for over a thousand years. This tribe had been in existence in West Africa. And so now in Ghana, they were populating all these neighboring villages, just multiple thousands of people. But they would come together, and this is what Reich heard about and was so intriguing. They would come together for an annual fest 
and all of the tribes people would make music. They would have drums and they would beat their drums and each family within the tribe had its own particular rhythm that didn't change. So if there was, for example, if the Mason family was in that larger tribe, the Masons had played the same particular groove for over a thousand years. It never changed. Masons 500 years from now would be playing the exact same groove they were playing 1,500 years earlier. And Reich was just enthralled by this concept and he asked them all these questions before he heard the music that first evening. And he said, so what happens when, has, has this ever happened when a, a family, a particular family in the tribe dies off? And they say it's happened many times in our history. And, and he said, well, so does somebody else inherit the beat that they played for a thousand years? And they said, no. And they said, we've, there have been times in our history where we've gone off to war and an entire family was wiped out. And we came back to our annual fest the next year and we made the music and while we played our drums, we wept and wailed because there was a missing beat that we had been hearing for centuries, and now it was gone. And this was so intriguing to him that he came back and he composed a piece where he had drummers on the stage with these drums lined up, and it was in honor of the UE tribe. And he made these drum beats, and all of these drummers were going at it, and at various points in the music, you'll see one drummer start to play lighter and lighter and lighter, and then he just walks off into the darkness. But that night, Steve Reich got to see and listen to the music of this tribe's people that had been played for a thousand years. The Romans 16 has a rhythm. Romans 16 is the, is the gospel rhythm of a church of diverse people who came together with different beats, but it all creates this one tribal gospel song that never changes from generation to generation. I think that's a picture of a local church. That's a picture of the church of Jesus Christ. So here's, here's the first feature of that rhythm. Point number one, we share a common passion. We share a common passion. You know, you, you find people in friendship who share a common passion. I was, um, I was eating a couple of months ago at a, a hole-in-the-wall restaurant in Leeds, and I'm at a table, and the place was full that particular day for lunch, and there were no tables left. I was at, I had to sit at a table of four. There were no other tables. So I'm at a table of four, and the waitress comes up, and we're practically on a first-name basis at this point. And she comes up, and she says, can these two gentlemen sit with you? And I looked up, and, and I said, sure. And they sat down, and they were all vested up. They were harleyed up. I mean, this, it, so they had clearly had pulled in on their bikes, and they were riding through at late summer. They were riding through the, the south. And, and I asked them, I said, so what's the secret sauce? Like, what makes a Harley person a Harley person? Well, how'd you get into it? How'd you guys meet each other? I'm asking everything about this. And, and so they were. They were at a rally together. One didn't have a Harley, and one did. And that rally transformed the second guy's life, and they found each other. They found out they lived, both of them lived in Florida, and they said, let's ride. And ever since, for like 10 years, they've been riding through the southern states this time of year together. They, they just bumped into each other, right? You, you find yourself shoulder to shoulder looking at something and sharing wonder, and friendship is born. C.S. Lewis talks about that in his, his well-known classic on friendships, 
It's called the four loves. And here's what he says. Friendship is born at that moment when one person says to another, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. And I saw that story right there in that restaurant in Leeds. So these guys just bumped into each other and they looked and said, you too? You're into this? You live in the same place? Let's ride, right? And they, it brought these two individuals together. It's not, in other words, friendship isn't, isn't deep when we just look at each other and talk about our friendship. There's something outside of us that we're standing shoulder to shoulder in, in awestruck wonder at that other thing, that outside thing, and it brings us together. You, you look and you read the New Testament and you find out what's that thing that the Apostle Paul can't take his eyes off, this passion that's beating in his heart. Here's a representation of what he says about that outside thing, Philippians 3, verse 10. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. His passion was to know Christ. Acts 20, 24, the apostle Paul says, I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of God's grace. So to know Christ and to testify to the gospel of grace. And then another one, Romans 15, 20 and 21. My aim is to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named so that I will not build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who were not told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. He wanted people worshiping Jesus who didn't know the name of Jesus. That was a passion of his. And here's another one, 1 Thessalonians 3, 8 through 10. Paul loved the church. He said, for now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. This is life for us, the church standing firm in the Lord. And then he goes on to say, how can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you as we pray very earnestly night and day to see your face, to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. So what do you hear here? I think when you read the New Testament, you read the works of the Apostle Paul, the letters of the Apostle Paul, he had a mantra. He didn't wake up every day and think, well, what am I going to do today? There, there, was, there was a burning passion, and, and it was Christ-exalted, churches established. Christ-exalted, churches established. And by churches established, that means the whole thing. From beginning to end, that means church is planted where people didn't know Christ, so church is planted further and further out, and it means those churches grounded in the truth, those churches well-taught, sound doctrine, churches healthy, forming up solid disciples through the ministry of word and sacrament. Paul wanted that picture, Christ exalted, churches established, his feet hit the floor in the morning and he's humming the music, Christ exalted, church is established. It's on the shaving mirror. It's everywhere, right? It's on his coffee mug. He's got a tattoo maybe, right? It's his cell phone ring. It's everything. It's Christ exalted. Church is established. And in Romans 16, it's like Paul bumps into these 27 other people and he looks and says, you too? This is what you're passionate about as well? These are other people around the world. And he, he meets them and he, he finds this shared, common passion. This is in your notes. Romans 16 is a picture of holistic gospel work. 
loving Jesus, hopefully we know these as well, growing in Jesus, and making disciples of Jesus. So just look, you see that right there at the beginning of Romans 16, in verse 1 and 2, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who was a servant of the church in Sincre. You should welcome her in a manner worthy of the saints and a sister in whatever matter she may require, for she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. Verse 1 and 2, Paul is commending the ministry of Phoebe, and he tells the church at Rome, make space for this gal's ministry. She's going to be a, trust me, she's going to be a blessing. You make space for her ministry in your church, and, and the church will be stronger for it. Brook Hills, here's the beautiful thing. We've got hundreds of Phoebes, hundreds of women who love the glory of Christ, who are making disciples and pouring into other women and speaking life into women's lives and We've got women here at Brook Hills who are forging and strengthening missionary partnerships around the world. We've got women who teach the Bible and teach people how to study the Bible. We've got women authors who are writing books. We've got women serving on our stewardship team and our personnel team and global teams and elder selection teams, right? We've got women being commissioned to the ends of the earth as missionaries. This isn't just words on a page. It is happening right here. Like if these women of all ages around our church, if they stopped doing what they're doing in Jesus' name, we would lose major momentum in gospel efforts here and around the world. We are blessed. We're so blessed. And our church has both, both women and men who share a common passion for Christ exalted and churches established and seeing fruit that brings glory to Christ. Speaking of men and women working together, look, look at verse 3. In the next verse, you meet a husband and wife, Prisca and Aquila, and look what Paul says in verse 4. They risk their necks for my life. Sometimes in ministry, you need somebody who'll throw blocks for you, who creates space for your ministry to run, right? That's what Prisca and Aquila did for Paul. Apparently, he was in a tight spot, a dangerous spot, <laughs> interestingly, there are many candidates for what that moment could have been. It could have been the riot in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Many things, but at some point, they happened to be there. They threw a block, and the mission of the Gentiles kept going because of it. He said they risked their lives, and if the Gentile churches knew what they did on that fateful day, the Gentile churches would stand and applaud the faithfulness of Prisca and Aquila. They risked it all. It was a mission move. Paul said, everybody needs to know that was a mission move on their part. Look at verse 5. Greet also the church that meets in their home. So in a persecuted environment in the early church, it was nearly impossible for churches to have meeting spaces like what we enjoy here this morning. Booted out of Solomon's colonnade, booted out of the synagogues, right? Where where does he go? Right, Right when it breaks out and they're kicked out of the synagogue, there's a guy who had been listening to the gospel, and they say, can we go to your house? Right? And, and thus begins this movement where, whereby people, in particular, more affluent members of the church who had larger houses, said, we'll use my house. We'll start meeting at my house. We'll sing the songs, right? And so I love hearing that not only did Prisca and Aquila save Paul's life and risk their necks for the advancement of the mission among the Gentiles, 
But they put out the chips and dip on Sunday morning, right? They, they made the song sheets for the songs and hymns and spiritual songs. They put out the chairs on the veranda for the people to gather. When they gather together, we're going to have it all ready for them right here. We're going to worship right here in our home. It's just this full expression of, of passion for gospel ministry and gospel mission. That's why Paul says, when you're greeting Prisca and Aquila, go ahead and greet the church that's meeting in their home every Lord's Day. Greet that congregation that they host. They love the mission. Right? These first verses, you see stories of people who love the mission, who love the church, who love gathered worship. They love worship, they love nurture, they love mission. So we share a common passion. Number two. Ministry and mission proceeds in the context of friendship. Proceeds in the context of friendship. So for the title of this sermon, um, I'm borrowing some language from a book that I read some years back by an author named Richard Lamb. The name of the book was The Pursuit of God in the Company of Friends. I love that title, The Pursuit of God in the Company of Friends. There's a sense in which mission might be framed as the pursuit of the lost in the company of friends. We go together. Here's here's one of my favorite quotes from that book. Richard Lamb writes, the human story is often a story of the accomplishments of a few against all odds. And the few are usually allied as friends around a common experience or context. The account of the founding of the Christian church is just such a story, having at its center Jesus Christ, the Son of God, unique in history. Nevertheless, get this here, the only structure he left in place for the propagation of a faith that would come to embrace a billion living people was a small group, a dozen people, whose friendships would enable, embolden, and empower them to live lives that turned the world upside down. The mission advanced and the ministry is deepened in the context of gospel friendship. You even think about what what Jesus said. He's sending out his disciples and he says, go out two by two. You can cover more ground if we go out one by one. He says, you go out with a friend. You go out two by two. Paul scarcely writes to a church without somebody being next to him. You, you can picture him there, and he's in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul and Sosthenes. Sosthenes is right there in the picture. 2 Corinthians 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Paul's with the same guy. He writes the letter, and he says, Timothy's right here with me. Paul and Timothy. 1 and 2 Thessalonians. Paul and Sylvanus. Galatians chapter 1. Paul and all the brothers who are with me. You wonder, is this man ever alone? Right? Is he, does he ever have any solitude, or is he always running with people, running with gospel friends? He keeps saying, with me, with me, with me. The mission proceeds in the context of friendship. We need others. We talked about that last week when we looked at Proverbs and friendship. We need others. Our friendship makes us more effective, and our ministry deepens our friendship. Think about that. Our friendship makes us more effective in ministry, and our ministry deepens our friendship. So notice that Paul 
Go back later and just note how many times he talks about those who worked hard, co-workers, fellow workers. But then it's not just fellow workers and co-workers. Paul uses terms of endearment. He uses the term dear friend over and over. And it's not just the big name friends we've gotten used to hearing, Silas and Barnabas and Timothy and Titus and Luke. It's not those names that we're familiar with. He's got another group of dear friends. Here's, here's one of them, Persis. Ever heard of Persis? Stachus, Ampliatus. I love verse 5. Paul names his first convert in Asia. He says, I'll never forget the first guy who came to faith in Asia. Right? It's hard to forget the first person you shared the gospel with, right? When, um, when I was in high school, um, some friends and I shared the gospel with a guy. We were, he was a teenager. He went to our school. He was a twin, but he was by himself at his table, and our friends, we walked over, and we sat at his table. We started to talk and just ask him about his life and his name and all that. His name was Robbie, and, um, and the more we talked, we, we eventually got to spiritual conversation, and we told him about Christ, and we told him the good news and how it had changed our lives. And after we had shared this, he said, so what do I do? And he said, I want to follow Jesus. And we're like, what, you do? He's like, no, yeah, 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 sure, of course you do, right? We were so shocked. Like, it was, I remember in that moment just thinking, you know, that whole power of God and the salvation thing, it actually works. And it, it doesn't just work in foreign fields. Like we prayed with him outside of tasty donuts under a light that was blinking saying hot donuts, right? This was the furthest thing from the front lines of the mission field. And yet here he is, heart transformed under the hot donut sign, following Jesus passionately. The gospel is a glorious thing and we share it in partnership with our friends, and Paul says, I'll never forget, his name was Eponidas, and he was the first guy who came to faith in Asia. What a day that was. And, he's, and not only, it wasn't that Eponidas was a notch on his belt. He says, Eponidas, my dear friend. It began a friendship. Again, this is a collection of people who, for the most part, they're not in the headlines. You know, often Christians will, will ask each other, hey, when you get to heaven, who do you want to meet, right? Who's, who's the first person you want to meet? And, of course, the right answer is Jesus, right? But after we say that, who are the names that come to mind, right? Everybody's going, everybody's doing Abraham and Sarah and Paul and, you know, all these big names, right? Nobody's saying flag on in verse 14. Nobody, nobody's asking for flag on's autograph after church, right? Phlegon is, is an ordinary believer. Phlegon, if he lived today, Phlegon has five Twitter followers. Four of them are family members. One's a spam account. That's, right, that's, that's Phlegon. Phlegon's small group buddies, I just love to imagine this. So, so here comes Phoebe, and she's got the book of Romans, and she presents it. That's what's often thought, is she actually carried this letter to the church at Rome. So she hands them the book of Romans, and I just love imagining Phlegon's friends that night, like reading through the book of Romans, and they get to chapter 16, and his phone's just blowing up. They're like, dude, you're in the Bible. <laughs> like, it says Phleg, like, you're right here. It's crazy. <laughs> These are no-name believers. These are anonymous believers. Nobody ever asked for Phlegon's autograph, but Paul says, that dude's awesome. He's a brother in Christ. He's a friend 
in Jesus. We share a common passion for gospel ministry and gospel mission. He names more friends right there in verse 7. Greet Andronicus and Junia. You ever heard of them? Fellow Jews and fellow prisoners. Think about that, right? We, we experience deeper friendship when we minister together, don't we? You ever join together and maybe you, you meet somebody because both of you are assigned to lead a, a small group in student ministry, and next thing you know, you become friends. Or maybe you take a short-term trip and you go to the other side of the world and you're exhausted and you're jet-lagged together and you're delirious and you're laughing and you're in mosquito nets and you're sharing the gospel and you're worn out and next thing you know, you come back and you've got a friend. It's like something, something profound happened in that space of ministry when we were side by side for the sake of the gospel. Imagine the, the bond of friendship that's created, not just when you share a hotel room on the other side of the world, but when you share a prison cell. And that's what Paul says, Andronicus and Junia, my fellow prisoners. Paul sang songs with Silas in Acts chapter 16. You hear Paul start singing a hymn in jail, and then a harmony part comes in, and that's Silas. They shared a prison cell. The apostle Paul spent a fair amount of time in jail with other believers, my fellow prisoners. I, I love the English Standard Version translation of verse 13. Here's the English Standard Version up on the screen if you don't have that one. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. You know, many scholars believe that this Rufus is the same Rufus mentioned in Mark's gospel. When Jesus is stumbling, carrying his cross, and a man named Simon of Cyrene is pulled in and they say, hey you, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, you carry this man's cross. Rufus's dad, many believe, was that Simon who carried the cross with Jesus. He was in the same neck of the woods in Rome. Mark probably wrote his gospel from Rome. Many believe that that's what's going on here, that Rufus's dad was the one that carried the cross. And yet Paul, I just love this, Paul doesn't draw attention to Rufus's dad. He draws attention to Rufus's mom. He says, who has been a mother to me as well. What did that look like? Did that look like, hey, you know, her ringing him up and just saying, I know you're in town and you're gonna come see me. I'm making your favorite soup. It's on the pot right now, right? Did she like tussle his apostolic hair when she walked by in the house? Did, like, what was the dynamic there? Did she sit him down and give him counsel and, and advice? We don't know. All, all we know is there was a special relationship such that he says, Rufus's mom is like my mom. She cares for me like she's my own mother. And he says, the church at Rome, you need to know this woman. She's an exceptional woman. Several years back, um, a blog series came out entitled, quote, Know Your Southern Baptists. And it was, uh, it was great. The men and women that were featured in the posts are folks worth knowing. The only thing that made it a little bit redundant is everybody knew them. Because they were all larger than life. They were all huge names that were known all around the world. The blog didn't say anything about a syncretist, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, and Hermas. But Paul says, 
These are people, I want you to know about these people. I want you to know their lives make a difference for the glory of Christ. They make the church come alive. These people live on mission for Christ's glory. I want you to know these no-name, base-hit believers because they're getting the job done. But when you think of men and women of whom the world is not worthy, are there any flagons in your list? We think of brothers and sisters that we know who are persevering in the faith in the midst of trials. These guys in Romans chapter 16, they didn't just understand the gospel, they were gripped by the gospel. They were captivated by the gospel. It was the centerpiece of their worship. It explained everything about their generosity. It explained their passion and their boldness in witness and in mission. Let me ask you the question, are you captured by the gospel? Like, has the gospel wrecked your old life? Are you ruined for what you thought was awesome before? That's what the gospel's meant to do. It's meant to fire in the interior part of your inner man, your inner soul, and change what makes life worth living, right? Is that your life? If Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, it is your life. That's your life, right? We're not our own. We don't have the right to make this about something else. It's all about him now. He's changed us, and now it's all about him. And we realize these things. We go into the New Testament, and we realize this earth is passing away. We'll be here today and gone tomorrow. Our money is passing away. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. That's the new thing that matters. That matters more than anything else in this world. Let me ask you, are you ready for judgment day? That's a very personal question, but you need to wrestle with that. Are you ready for the day Jesus touches down on planet earth to judge the living and the dead? Have you trusted in the Savior? Have you turned from sin and repented of sin and put your trust in the only hope of the world? and the cross by which our sins have been cleansed. Are we, are we living for that day? Are we hastening that day? This New Testament language is used. Are we hastening that day by sharing the gospel passionately and sharing the good news with the lost? Telling them that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again so that all who believe may be saved from our biggest problem? Coming wrath? The judgment of God is trucking toward planet earth because we've sinned against a holy God and we can hide in Jesus. That's the message that we proclaim. He's given us a passion to proclaim that message. Are we prepared? Friends, this is a moment that we need to think about this. We need to hit the reset button as a church all together in solidarity. This is the drum we're beating, right? Are we prepared to spend our lives, our resources, our time, our talent, our treasure to see Christ exalted and churches established. Does that wake you up in the morning? I pray that God would give you a hunger for the things that are on his heart, the ministry of the gospel, the mission of the gospel. Look, we have a message that's going to arouse opposition from this world. But we have a message that through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is going to raise the dead. Will we proclaim it? Why would we spend our passions on some lesser thing 
when we can be a part of something that's so much bigger than we are. The propagation of the gospel. A gospel church has, has a rhythm to it, and you should be able to discern the rhythm of the gospel in the life of the church. You think about that story of that tribe in Ghana and ask yourself the question, as a church, are we locked in to this gospel rhythm? Are we beating our drums in time to this one glorious story of gospel ministry and gospel mission? So I wanna try something before we're done. We're actually gonna try, I might regret this after, we're gonna actually try to create a rhythm together now. So I'm gonna invite some friends who uh, have been known to have decent rhythm or, or better, really good rhythm. And so unlike the UE people, uh, we haven't done this for a thousand years. So it might be a little bumpy for us. This is our first time trying this. So we're gonna try it, right? And because we give ourselves to loving Jesus and growing in Jesus and making disciples of Jesus, worship, nurture, and mission, we're gonna divide the room in thirds, okay? Divide the room in thirds. So uh, somewhere in here, I know that's super vague and unhelpful. Somewhere in here, so there's the right side. And then kind of this central quadrant right here, you're in the middle. And then there's the left side, okay? So we're going to start. Left side, you're going to be the hi-hat in this deal, okay? So we're just going to do eighth notes on a hi-hat, relatively slow. Oh, okay, there, okay. Hi-hat. <laughs> I told you we hadn't practiced this, right? Okay. Okay, so one and two and three and four and. Don't speed up. Now, kick drum over here. Okay, now the snare drum. One. Loving Jesus. Good. And ready and stop. Woo! That was awesome. Yes. Friends, that's the sound of a church locked in, locked into a common purpose, making individual and varied music, but it all creates this one tribal rhythm. We didn't get a chance to thank our tribal leaders before they headed out, but yeah. All right, so three very brief application points for you to write down. Very, very brief before we go. What's the sound of a church where believers are rooted in the truth and reaching out with the gospel? Number one, love Jesus. Love Jesus. What's that mean? It means put him first in your life. It means give him the calendar and the wallet and the marriage and the relationships and the college major. Give him, give him everything, everything. Live with a singular passion to make Jesus famous. And under loving Jesus, I would also put this. Worship him not only with your own personal life, but worship him here. 
Worship him in the gathering of the local church. This has been what the church has done for 2,000 years. Lord's Day is set aside. We gather to hear his word, to sing his word, and to see his word in the sacraments. So does this matter to you so much that it takes a lot for you to miss gathered worship? You know, you, you look at the early church community, the most missionally effective community of believers in 2,000 years. They didn't want fewer gatherings. They wanted more. They daily they met and they were giving themselves to the apostles' doctrine of the breaking of bread and fellowship and the prayers. They said, we need this. This is strengthening us. This is making us strong. Right? Does this matter to us? Are we hearing Hebrews 10 saying, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Come hungry for his word. Come hungry for God. Love Jesus. Number two, grow in Jesus. Grow in Jesus. So, Commit to a local body. Maybe you're already a member of the Church of Brook Hills. Maybe you're not a member of any church. Become a member of a gospel-proclaiming local church. And look, here you are. You're right here at this gospel-proclaiming local church. Just become a member here. If you love Jesus, become a member here. I would even say to you, go out into the lobby after this. We have a membership class this afternoon. It would be an awesome problem if we run out of space because so many people are, are striking while the iron's hot. It's like, you know what? It's time. It's time I've been attending, but I've been encouraged in my faith, and I'm going I'm to dive all the way in. And don't just dive all the way in and love Jesus. Help others love Jesus. Look around. Get involved in a small group and look around and see how can I be a ministry of encouragement to other believers so that we're all growing in Jesus together. And then third, make disciples of Jesus. Make disciples of Jesus. Lean forward. Ask the Holy Spirit for boldness to share the gospel with somebody this week. A friend, a family member, uh, the, the person selling you a car, the person fixing the fence, whoever, the, the Harley guys who show up at the table in the restaurant in Leeds, that we would be desiring and asking the Holy Spirit for fresh boldness to make disciples. And not only make disciples on the front end, but disciple them too as we re recite this every week. What do you do once somebody's baptized and they enter into the life of the church and they put their trust in Jesus? Jesus said, I'll tell you exactly what to do. Teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. Open the Bible with that brand new believer and start walking through the word with them, teaching them discipling them, instructing them in the faith. Brooke Hills, I'll close with this. If, if we are faithful in our generation and if we pass our faith on to a coming generation, you should be able to, people should be able to gather in this same place a hundred years from now, and you hear the same unchanging gospel rhythm. Because that message has been once for all delivered to the saints, and we don't, we're not given the, the task of improving it, adding to it, changing it, making it more palatable to the culture. You should be able to hear a hundred years from now, by the grace of God, that same gospel sounding forth in whoever is a member of the Church of Brook Hills and sounding forth in this community, in this city, and to the furthest reaches of the ends of the earth. Here's my prayer. May God keep us faithful. 
May the Holy Spirit grant us boldness and perseverance. And may Jesus receive glory.